invite you to turn to Acts chapter 5 today. We're just going to cover five verses. I was studying this obviously in the week and I hit a minor block. I think it's because I came to this passage thinking just because of its content that it was going to be very prescriptive material as in it's going to prescribe to us as a church and as a people how to act. Um, what, is, what does it say to me? How am I supposed to emulate what I see? But as I looked it over, I thought maybe it's more descriptive than I originally thought. It's, it's just a short summary of the apostles and the church, which is still growing in the book of Acts. And it seems like every other story Luke says, and more were added to the church. <laughs> and so it is today in today's passage. But the church is added to in the middle of, of quite the episode of miracles and healing going on with the apostles. By way of preface before this story, I want us to be reminded of what we just got done studying last week. Last week we read largely the story of Ananias and Sapphira. That while many people in the church were, were voluntarily selling their property left and right, and giving money to the church to help people. Here was a, a married couple who, who likely vowed publicly to sell property they owned and give it all to the church. Well, when they get the money, they decide to keep some of it that they had originally said that they would give to the Lord, and they didn't tell anybody else about that idea. And we know that because whenever they bring the money that they're comfortable with giving... Peter accuses them of lying to God. Why did you lie to God? And so then we hear that they literally dropped dead. As soon as they were convicted, God killed them on the spot. And so if you're confused or if you missed that or if you suddenly have a headache wondering how does a loving God that we serve do that, uh, you can listen to the previous sermon online and how to get there is in your bulletins. But that incident influences a statement that we're about to read in our passage today. So I invite you to stand in honor of reading the Lord's Word today together in Acts 5, verses 12 through 16. We read, it says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits. And they were all healed. Let's pray. Father, we come before you um, under the shadow of the cross, under Jesus, our righteousness. And we ask of you to speak to us. We pray that your spirit would be ministering to our hearts, opening up our minds, that as Paul prays that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds. 
Father, whatever it is you desire to say, whatever area in our lives that you desire to open up and and bring light into, we, we give you freedom to do so. Have your way among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The practical takeaways from this passage that we study together today would be that the work of the church will have implications on the attitude towards the church and the growth of the church. And we might even define the idea of growth differently than its original intent in the passage In other words, growth numerically in our text might mean in our context in Woodland, growth might have more spiritual connotations. But we'll talk about that. I have given us four points out of these five verses, and I just mentioned them because bookending the entire passage here, point one and four, is the work of the apostles. And points two and three is the attitude towards the church and the growth of the church. So we have the work of the apostles, the attitude of the church, the growth of the church, and then a second emphasis on the work of the apostles. That's going to be how we navigate our text this morning. The first emphasis on the work of the apostles is right here at the beginning of verse 12. We see that now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. The apostles are are doing what they have been doing even before Pentecost, even before Jesus died and was buried and before he resurrected. In fact, Luke would record all the way back in Luke chapter 9 that Jesus called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And then verse 6 of that chapter would confirm for us, And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So for Jesus' first church, they're doing something that they've done since their earliest days, uh, since Jesus of Nazareth was in the flesh as their pastor, to use a contemporary term. And I've made the point in this series over and over that Jesus is still the pastor. He's just their pastor by the Holy Spirit, spiritually. The apostles are doing signs and wonders. So what signs and wonders are they doing? Verses 15 and 16 might give us a glimpse. Healing illnesses and exercising demons. That's what Jesus did, as we just read. It's what the apostles did in the life and ministry of Jesus as, and as well as after Pentecost. What this does, though, is that for the people who witness it, it gives power and testimony to the apostles. It shows the people that these apostles are truly the workers of God, that power goes before them and follows them in their wake, that they're still bringing in the kingdom of God. Furthermore, though, Luke connects back to a very recent episode as he notes among the places where the apostles are doing signs and wonders and where people gather. Luke says, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. 
So because of the work of the apostles, we see a gathering. In fact, they gather in Solomon's portico. And this is noteworthy because if some of you remember back about 15 years ago, whenever we were in Acts chapter 3, uh, we will find that Peter... Man, it took a while. Man, need to listen. Sorry. Peter and John, they met a lame beggar at the gate of the temple. The lame beggar asked for silver or gold, and Peter said, we don't have that, but we do have Jesus. So in his name, get up and walk. And the lame beggar did just that. What happened next? A crowd gathered, and Peter gave a sermon testifying to the power of Jesus in Solomon's portico. He said, why are you looking at me or John as if we had power or piety to heal this man? It's all Jesus doing. And Peter then said, in essence, Jesus can not only heal crippled legs, but he can heal crippled hearts. He can heal crippled spirits. And he can save you. And then Peter explains who Jesus is, that he is, in fact, the long-awaited Messiah in which Jerusalem's leaders had just executed and Jerusalem's people had cheered for the execution. So this understandably garners the attention of these said leaders who executed Jesus they're, they're basically saying to themselves, we thought this Jesus thing was done. They come in and they imprison Peter and John and they charge them, don't speak the name of Jesus. And Peter responds, should we follow men or should we follow God? You decide. What would you do? Asks Peter to the should-be devout religious leader. And so being religious and devout, they decide to pe- beat Peter and John some more and then they release them. We had a little intermission in Luke's narrative, giving us the details about community life for Christians and about the happenings of Ananias and Sapphira. But here we are moving along in the narrative to find once again, Peter, with all of the apostles, are again at Solomon's portico, doing signs and wonders and no doubt giving glory to the name of Jesus in the process. The very place where they were told not to. These words... Back here in this verse 12, all together would be translated in other places as with one accord or with one mind. And in Acts 4.24, right after Peter and John had been released from prison, they went to the church, they told them all the events, and we read in verse 4.24, when they heard it, they lifted their voices together. The same word for all together back in 5.12. To God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And they ultimately pray for boldness to continue to speak the name of Jesus. So the church who prayed together for boldness is the church back at ground zero, if you will, where the first persecution began in Solomon's portico, boldly continuing the ministry. Jesus has answered their prayers. But now... Luke shows us, what do the people think? What kind of attitude is towards the church here? We read in verse 13, it says, None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. So we got to camp here and talk about a few interpretations, a few possibilities. It has to do with the them here in this passage. Who are the them? Now, if you're like me, I didn't realize this was up for debate. (laughs) I just naturally assumed actually it was the church 
In fact, here's what I just asked. What kind of attitude is towards the church here? However, on close examination, let's look at the antecedents we have. Verse 12 has a they, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. And the only antecedent to that is now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. So it could be that Luke has very specifically the apostles in mind here. Because this section started out showing us that here are the apostles doing signs and wonders. They're held in high esteem. No one else dared join them because they had authority. I also used verse 13 last week as my punchline that um, it could be that the apostles were feared because Ananias and Sapphira had just been put to death. Don't mess with those guys. (laughs) But the Greek grammar, so all my study notes tell me, allows for the ambiguous they and them to also be the church. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and the whole church was all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join the believers, but the people had the belie- held the believers in high esteem. So, when it comes down to it, were the believers all together in Solomon's portico? Nobody dared to join them, held them in high esteem, or was it the apostles who were all together? If it were the believers, nobody might dare to join them, but held them in high esteem because they fear the dedicated calling, the high calling it costs to be a true believer. So whenever you have people like Ananias and Sapphira dying, or we have the sting of Jewish persecution rising, As we made mention, Peter and John were already imprisoned once, and an imprisonment of all the apostles follows this story here in Acts. So there's no room for superficial, half-hearted following here. I'm not using my Kindle today, and I'm losing my spot a lot. (laughs) All the while, they could be held in high esteem because these are genuine people. Who doesn't like a person with serious, devoted convictions? And they're unwavering. As Isaiah feared the holiness of God, Isaiah 6.5 says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Or the author of Hebrews warns us in Hebrews 10.31, was is also relevant to Ananias and Sapphira, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So it could be, that the church generally was feared for their holiness and for their vulnerability in the hands of the living God. Nevertheless, they were held in high esteem. If it were the apostles that nobody might not dare join them, nevertheless held them in high esteem, it could be because the apostles were noted for their unique authority. They were noted that they continued the healing and exercising ministry of Jesus after Jesus had ascended bodily. It could be that the people are saying, wow, they're in a league of their own, these apostles. And since it was Peter who confronted Ananias and Sapphira, and Peter and John who boldly preached in spite of Jewish persecution, the same sort of fear from people that is directed towards the church could also be directed towards the apostles. 
In other words, whether Luke be talking about the apostles specifically or the church generally, obviously many of the same reasons might apply. Does that make sense? So here's the funny thing that, that we move into in our next section. And I want to back out of our examination for a minute and make some practical observations. What we're about to read, I think, should give us some insight into, quote, attracting. And I use that word lightly. How about simply just connecting with non-believers and outsiders? Because you and I and church culture has been so infected, I think, with consumer culture that we come up with terms like seeker friendly. Now, what does seeker friendly even mean? What's it supposed to mean? Does that mean we're supposed to dress casually? Does that mean we don't preach out of Shakespearean English translations? Does that mean that uh, we put a guitar on the stage along with the piano or do we just do away with the piano? <laughs> Does seeker friendly mean we don't have pastors like Kevin boring you with deep theological stuff, but we instead have a guy up here preaching about 10 ways to pray better? <laughs> what does seeker friendly mean? I want you to notice the track record of Peter and John. Peter and John are in the premises of the temple which is, for lack of better terms, the holiest place on planet Earth to the Jewish people. And they are preaching the name of Jesus, who is really the number one enemy of the Jewish church, so much they just executed him. If that doesn't hit you, this is me going to Jerusalem to the Wailing Wall and saying, this temple is meaningless. In fact, it's an affront to God, because Jesus is the temple. Jesus is where we come to worship. The temple is blasphemous because Jesus is the ultimate and the only sacrifice. This is akin to me going to Mecca or me going to the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem, going to any Muslim ground and proclaiming Jesus as God, not Allah. Furthermore, what's happening at Jesus' first church? Oh, not much. You remember Ananias and Sapphira? Yeah, those were good people. Yeah, they died at Jesus' first church. Is there a plague going around? No, God didn't like their offering. Peter claimed that they lied, but I don't know. Are Peter and John in the first church being very seeker-friendly? What's the preaching like at Jesus' first church? Peter is just hung up on telling everyone that they're responsible for crucifying Jesus. Every chance he gets, he reminds his audience that they killed Jesus. Is this seeker-friendly? And so I want to propose to our three-pound fallen brains thoughts that Peter and John in the first church really have a measly chance with the crowds, right? Like they're preaching in the holy places of aggressively opposed religions. They're telling crowds that they're guilty of crucifying Jesus. People are literally dying at their fellowship for their unholiness. No wonder there is fear in joining them. But look at verse 14 with me. And more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Two things I want to say about this. First of all, it is just miraculous. It is divine. It's supernatural. I mean, look at that. More than ever. And if we take Luke literally, which I do, this is more than when crowds witness the Spirit fall on disciples for them to speak in tongues and for Peter to preach. This is more than when Peter preached the last time at Solomon's portico after the crippled man was healed. More than ever. 
This is after Ananias and Sapphira. This is after persecution took place more than ever. The Spirit is involved in this. The Spirit is drawing people to Him. The Spirit is anointing the ministry of the church. Multitudes are coming to the Lord because of the divine involvement of the Holy Spirit. But secondly, I think it speaks directly against the way we think, does it not? Because here's how we think. I need to be welcoming, inviting, and sugarcoating. People need to be won over by my winsome qualities and by nice words and my attractive movements towards them. That's how I win people to Christ. Friends, a soft, wimpy witness might produce a soft, wimpy Christian. (laughs) Do you hear that? Now, I need to be careful here. Because here's what I'm not saying. Go grab two-by-fours and Bibles and strong arm and preach hellfire and brimstone and sinners in the hand of an angry God who's ready to burn sinners up like kindling and strike the fear of God into people. Now show me in the Bible where Peter or the apostles scare people into repentance by scaring literally the hell out of them. I don't think that happens. I don't think you'll find it. But what I will say is don't apologize for the Bible. (laughs) Don't apologize for Jesus' jealous love. Don't apologize for the truth. Don't sugarcoat things. Well, do I really want to follow a God for fearful reasons to us, put to death Ananias and Sapphira? Well, would you really want to follow a God who is unjust, (laughs) who is okay with unholiness? Do you really want to follow a God who is powerless to right wrongs just as much as we are? Dude, does God really have a high standard for sexual purity and marriage and really puts a ban on sexual things more so than the civil law these days? Do you really want to follow a God who puts up with adultery? What does that say about his commitment to us? I feel like sometimes that we as Christians are quick to defend the Bible and apologize for it. This is okay. (laughs) As opposed to preach, teach, and share it without shame or guilt, or embarrassment. We can take a hint from the first church who got put in prison for proclaiming Jesus, who preached Jesus in the enemy's end zone, and who witnessed the death of two hypocrites and didn't even apologize for it. And I want to press further, and and I probably already stepped on toes, so I'm just going to keep trucking. But i got to take a lesson from what I just preached and... And I hate to say it, but I wonder if there are some of us here who shrink back from embracing everything the Lord says. That some of us are embarrassed or we're even angered by the sinners in the hands of an angry God parts of Scripture. And we are upset or we're self-righteous about God still judging sin. That God still calls sinners out of sin and into repentance. And I understand that some of this is hard. I have to preach it every Sunday. But instead of, instead of saying, that sounds hard, I don't know if I can follow a God like that, I wonder if we can graduate and move to a place of, that's hard, and because I find it to be hard, how do I need to change? What, what does this say about the wrong ways I think? Because contrary to what the, the non-believers say about God's Word, it's not that we live in a world that has progressed beyond the way God thinks. But we live in a world that, as the Bible has already told us, is constantly hostile to how God thinks. And it's not that that God needs to catch up with us. 
It's more that we need to submit and surrender and be transformed by the renewing of our minds and be content and be growing in the way that God thinks and operates. I wonder if you hear that. Some of us might say, but that seems ingrown. That doesn't work. That's too high of a standard and it makes God out to be not how I like Him to be. But I want to say to you that when, when true Christ-sourced, Holy Spirit-empowered God-glorifying faith ignites the soul. More than ever, believers can be added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. And it starts with our own soul. It starts with a heart that's fully devoted to God, not partially devoted to God. When true Christianity is espoused, then that means true believers are added, (laughs) not soft, wimpy Christians but the kind of Christian that comes from a surrendered heart and that is okay and that embraces what God says instead of judging what God says. Well, we've seen the work of the apostles, signs and wonders and healing, meeting at Solomon's portico, which led to the attitude towards the church of both fear and respect, which has led to the growth of the church more than ever, men and women, but leads us back to square one, more work of the apostles. We read in verses 15 and 16, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least, as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Some of you remember the story. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record it that Jesus is making his way through a crowd, going to the daughter of a man named Jairus. I know Calvin knows that story. (laughs) When someone thinks to herself, we read in Mark, actually, that there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment, for she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And now here is Jesus' first church and and specifically Peter with the same reputation. Here is Jesus' first church, Peter, where his very presence provokes within the sick people around him, like the woman to just have Peter's shadow fall on him. Now, as a Protestant, I'm not okay with this being Peter. There's that part of me, right? One of my commentary asks, were these things an evidence of true faith or of superstition? (laughs) And it is easier to ask the question than to answer it, but in any case, God seems to have honored the earnest desire because we're told right here in the passage, and they were all healed. See, I'm afraid I come to this passage... And I want a prescription. How do you do it, boys? (laughs) I mean, you're ticking off religious Jewish officials. You're preaching in their temple. People are, uh, are dying because our God is putting them to death. You're telling people left and right that they're guilty murdering Jesus. And here you are growing more than you've ever grown. And having the very reputation of Jesus as you go about your business. So I want to make this a very simple equation, a very simple formula. And if you've already looked at the title of the sermon, you can guess what it is. Be Jesus to people. Be Jesus to people. 
And now I need to fill that four-word sentence up with some background because we need to be the Jesus of the Bible to people. Friends, you look throughout the gospel accounts and you see crowds came about Jesus. I dare you to go home and read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John with one question in mind. Is the kind of Jesus that the crowds flock to the kind of Jesus that I think him to be? What does Jesus say? What does he do? Is Jesus a doormat? Does he hand out teddy bears, lollipops, and give out self-help books? Or could it be that, that Peter has the reputation of Jesus in his healing ministry and in his demon exorcism because Peter is also mimicking Jesus in his boldness? Because Jesus not only preached in the temple, he actually fastened a whip and drove out corrupt leaders. Jesus not only talked about his resurrection in the temple, tear this temple down and in three days I will rebuild it, but he said to the leaders in the temple, before Abraham was, I am claiming to be God in the temple of God, an offense that he could lose his life over for merely stating. And not only did Jesus predict Jerusalem's leaders would have him crucified, he called them the very sons of Satan. So what's the point? Call everyone guilty, rotten sinners, don't be afraid to rough up bad guys? Of course, that's not the point. The point is, is to be Jesus to people, we also need to be Jesus unfiltered. Because Jesus also went where the people who claimed to be too holy would never go. Jesus dined with sinners. Jesus loved on lepers. Jesus spoke with prostitutes and let them in on the church. Jesus was ticking off religious people, usually because he was too loving on the kinds of people that the religious people kept at arm's length. I wonder if sometimes we water down Jesus when people need the real thing. But I also would caution us not to just take hold of the truth and the justice and the judgment parts of Jesus when people also need the love and the care and the compassion of Jesus. So let's take this truth, be Jesus to people, and plug it into our sermon progression and what it means for us at Woodland Friends. So the work of the apostles. Are we about the work of Jesus here in Woodland? I don't know if, if you know this, and sometimes I think this too, but church actually doesn't stop on Sunday. We're called to lifelong discipleship. What would Jesus have you be doing, church, tomorrow, in your families, with your neighbors, as you interact with people? How do you continue to be about the work of Jesus? I'm going to be working potato chips tomorrow with my chip boss. Will I be about the work of Jesus? What does that look like for me? Secondly, what is the attitude towards our church? And if we happen to have knowledge of that, before we're too critical or before we're too puffed up, is it because they see us or Jesus? Because there's a medium there. Sometimes, again, we can be unnecessarily too offensive with not enough grace of Jesus. And other times we can be unnecessarily too permitting with not enough truth from Jesus. What's the attitude towards our church? Is it a healthy dose of fear coupled with a healthy dose of respect as it was to the first church? Thirdly, is our church growing and are we growing in godliness? Are we growing in the character of Christ? Are we cultivating Christ? And if we're growing numerically, are we growing with soft or genuine Christians? Do you want to like Christ or do you want to be like Christ? 
Because if we're being Jesus to people and if people see Jesus in us and if we're striving to be like Jesus, then we need to go back to square run and continue to be Jesus to people. That's our mandate to carry out what Christ has started in reaching the world. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... um, we find that often you work differently than our minds think. We find that sometimes we think that just a winsome attitude, a watered town gospel, and basically trying to make the, the church as much as the world as it can be without being the world would, would win people to you. But rather we find that people are thirsty and hungry for something that is altogether not the world. It's because they're hungry for truth. They're hungry for to be filled for what they were made for. They're hungry for the living water and the bread from heaven that is outside of everything they know right now because they're blinded by the world. Father, sometimes we're, we think we're in the church, but we too are blinded by the world. So we pray that what you have given us today is truly Jesus and help us to be truly Jesus to those around us. Father, that's easy to remember to take home. Be Jesus to people. Help us to know your word so we know who Jesus is. Help us to rely on your spirit to be that true Jesus to people. Father, we pray this and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.